Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am really glad you're with us today. Um, We are digging into a topic today that I think a lot of people are scared to address, grief. Grief is something that we all experience, whether it's in a more dramatic form like losing a loved one at an early point in our lives or even losing a relationship or seeing a relationship change over time. And today's guest is here to talk about it all. And I'm so grateful. Krista St. Germain is a life coach. She's the host of the Widowed Mom podcast, and she has used her own personal story of grief to help people move through that stage in their life with a sense of power, empowerment, and a look toward the future at growth, which I think for anyone who's experienced grief might be the most important part of the process, something to look forward to. Krista, thank you so much for joining me today on We Gotta Talk. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Sunny. It's always a pleasure to talk about grief. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, we were joking before the podcast started and we said, you know, let's like make this, let's make this uh, digestible and good. But you said something so profound, which is like, I actually like talking about this. I wish more people like talking about this, Krista, because it's, it's, it happens to all of us. And I don't know why we're so uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And I, and the more we talk about it now, the more prepared we are when it actually happens the next time, which is what I definitely wasn't. Uh so, yeah. Yeah, tell, let's lead let's lead with that. Tell us your story. Tell us yeah. how you got into the line of work that you're doing now. Mhm. A little bit by accident. Uh, no pun intended, but I was 40 and I was on my second marriage. My first one had kind of gone down in flames and I had met like the man of my dreams, right? It was like the the true redemption story of you can find someone who values you and will it will treat you well and you can have an amazing life together. And we were on our way back from a trip and we had driven separately and I had a flat tire pulled over on the side of the interstate. Stubborn man that he was did not want to wait for AAA to come and change that tire. You know, baby, just let me change the tire. I'll do it. We'll get home faster. So I'm standing on the side of the road texting my then 12-year-old daughter to tell her we would be late. And he's digging in my trunk trying to get access to the spare tire and a car, which we later found out the driver had both meth and alcohol in his system, 530 on a Sunday. So it's still daylight. Did not see our hazard lights, did not break, just crashed right into the back of Hugo's Durango and trapped him in between his car and my car. And what felt like this perfect, amazing life and amazing future was just within 24 hours, like ripped away. And so I, I I didn't really know anything about grief at that point, right? And most of what I did know really was kind of outdated and not so useful. So once I got through that um, and kind of came up for, for air and found tools that actually work, and I had to search for them, I decided I don't want other people to have this experience that I had and, and not be informed and not understand grief and struggle so much. And so I just decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a coach and I'm going to help people with this. And so that was 2016. And here we are. My God, Krista, you yeah. not only experienced grief, but you were there at the moment you're, oh, yeah. Passed. I mean, uh, yeah. I, to say that's like, I have sympathy for you is like an understatement of the year. I mean, how, how did you recall even physically removing yourself from that scene? I mean, and is it true that when you experience an acute point of trauma like mm-hmm. that, that you sometimes 
lose memory or lose a sense of presence in the moment? Yeah. I mean, I think it's different for every person. For me, it was, it was oddly calm. Um, I just remember thinking, okay, you know, cause I wasn't looking when the accident happened. I just heard the impact of it. And then I turned around and I couldn't see him. And I saw the driver of the other car get out and stumble. And, I, and mm. as I look back on it, I remember how clear I felt in the moment that the first thing I need to do is call for help, right? It, it, it was like everything slowed down. Um, and I know it, that was not how I was experiencing it at all. Um, but for me, it, it was oddly in slow motion. And there are elements of it that I don't remember. And, you know, right. fast forward to the hospital and a large debacle there, things did not go well, an hour of watching them do CPR. And I mean, yeah, trauma with a, with a capital T. Um, and really hard for me to imagine in those early days how it could ever be possible for me to really love life again. It really did feel, especially, you know, in the, in the early aftermath that I was just, I had had my chance at happiness and it was never coming back. You know, like that was it. Tell me about the mix of emotions there. You just described one, which is, it sounds like a, a sense of hopelessness, mm -hmm. anger, because what I'm hearing mm -hmm. you describe is a person who was deliberately out of control, mm -hmm. who had chosen to take substances mm -hmm. that would impact his yeah. ability to function. I would have raging, raging mm -hmm. anger, Krista, and I'm sure you did too. Or did you, you know, not? Strange though. And and I mean, I don't believe that any emotions are problems, certainly not anger. So so it, I, I come to you with a completely open heart about all emotions. But for me, anger was not a predominant emotion. I was I was mm. angry that it happened and I was I was brokenhearted that it happened. But I think it was quick for me to come to the conclusion that you don't end up with meth and alcohol in your system at five 30 on a Sunday. If your life is going well, right? Like you're not, right. you're not loving life if that's what's happening to you. And so I just never really believed that even though I wanted that person to be held accountable, I never really believed that he did that on purpose. And, and the same thing with the doctors, because there was some procedural issues that who's to say what actually caused the death ultimately, it just doesn't even matter. But, um, you know, at one point after they, they couldn't bring him back when he had coded, you know, a doctor came in and the, the main doctor and, and really apologized and said, you know, something went wrong and we tried and he was just devastated. I mean, he was just like crying right in front of me and, and just, I'm so sorry this happened. And I, I, I remember my, my stepmother was in the room, you know, that little ICU room where you, right. you wait. Right. And she was like, so basically what you're saying is that you killed him. And she was just, I, I mean, you know, Livid. rage. Yeah. Controlled rage, but you could tell seething. And that just wasn't what, what felt true to me in that moment. What felt true to me in that moment was this is a man who tried really hard and something went wrong and he right. did the best job he could with what he knew. And he was devastated and about to go and try and take care of another patient, right. Who also needed his attention. So yeah, anger just for me, it wasn't a huge part of my grief, but but it's totally okay and common when it is. It just wasn't. Yeah, it almost sounds like there's no space left sometimes for anger in that immense amount of maybe mourning you were feeling too. That that's it's the acceptance of this is what happened, and and for you to to have accepted that in the moment, I think speaks volumes about 
I mean, the type of person you are, because I think a lot of people might get stuck in that um, who's to blame game. And that's really in your work and especially, especially dealing with widows and widowers and people who've experienced mm-hmm. grief. Do you encounter most people getting stuck? And I don't want to use the word, the stage of gr- that stage of grief. Cause I know that there are some issues with the process yeah, of yeah. whatever the numbers, uh, uh, the number of steps of grief that, that you were going to discuss a little bit later, but do you find most people do get stuck in that moment? I see it as almost more like a protective thing. Sometimes they get stuck, but but when you break it down, what I usually find is, you know, if if we kind of take all of the emotions that humans experience and we stack them in order from the least desirable to the most desirable, you know, powerlessness, despair, fear, those are some of the the lower level emotions, the ones that humans really don't like. Mm-hmm. And so while we don't like anger, it's actually higher on the emotional scale. It's a more powerful feeling than powerlessness. So a lot of what I see is that our brain will take us to a place of anger almost as a way to avoid powerlessness. Wow. That's profound. Yeah. And yeah, and it can be really useful to know, oh, because we tend to judge ourselves for being angry or beat ourselves up or tell ourselves there's something wrong because we're so angry. And sometimes if we can step back and go, wait, I think this is actually the part where my brain's kind of trying to keep me safe, trying to keep me away from what I really don't want, which is to acknowledge that I am powerless and feel that. I have to, I have to ask you if this impacted your faith at all. I mean, um, to, to go through, and I don't know yeah. how faithful of a person or to what traditions you ascribed or, or back then or do now, but how did it change your view on fate mm-hmm. and faith? Yeah, it's, it really does impact people so much. So for me, it was interesting. My husband uh, didn't have any faith at all. He was an atheist. Uh, he was he was an engineer, a scientist, like you know, that was just not a part of his life. And when we got married, I actually had my pastor marry us, even though it wasn't his church, but he was totally willing to do that. And so I was a member of the unity church. And for me, it just felt like it, it didn't impact that much. It, it is how I see it is that, you know, we're, we're all part of one mind, one source, one love, one energy, right? And suffering is caused when we think life is going to go one way and it goes another, right? And that's what the human mind does is we have this idea of the way that it's supposed to go, but that isn't necessarily the way it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was more of a coming home to, okay, actually I don't know. I thought I knew, but actually I don't know. And there's, and there's kind of peace for me, and there was, in surrendering back to that truth that it's okay for me not to know. And it's okay for me to wish, right, and, 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 and have wanted it to be what it wasn't. Yeah. Right? And those can coexist, right? Your, your those can desire. can totally coexist. Right. Yes. So I never, for me, I never felt like I was being punished or, you know, but I didn't grow up in you know, I didn't grow up in, in the belief that good things happen to good people. Hmm. Right. That was never really. And a lot of people do, right. A lot of people. Right. I was going to say, you're, you're not Catholic then, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm not. And I, and I, and, and so I, I didn't really have to reconcile with, to me, it was like, no, actually right. like bad things happen to good people all the time. 
It's it's so interesting too because I have you know gone through um, knock on all the wood minor phases of grief in my life. I should say grief appropriate for someone of my age at forty one years old. Thankfully, did not experience the loss of a parent early or anyone of, of uh, tremendous significance. I mean, things happened mm-hmm. in the quote unquote traditional order up to this point in my life. But I have witnessed so many people have such vastly different reactions to grief and death from something you're talking about, a, a calm sort of acceptance and a desire to move on to mm-hmm. um, sort of raging against the whole experience and really fighting the change. And 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 I wonder if you ever advise the people that you work with, and I know you work in the in the capacity of a life coach in addition to hosting your podcast. Is is that part? Does it have to be part of the healing process? A seek, seeking toward a greater power or faith, and how do you deal with people who go into this experience of grief with such different life experiences and, and faiths, you know, beliefs mm-hmm. to begin with? Because you're probably dealing with people who have all sorts of different belief systems. Yeah, for sure. I like to think about it with the framework that post-traumatic growth is possible for all of us, right? It's it's not morally superior. It's not mandatory, but it is possible for all of us. And one component of post-traumatic growth is often spiritual growth or spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. And so basically what that means is, you know, we can, we can take anything that happens to us in our lives, including something that we experience as traumatic, which is highly subjective. And we can use that to inform the choices that we make. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so if we can do that intentionally, then we can come out on the other side, living, living a life that is even more aligned with what we value, right. That is an even fuller expression of who we want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there can be a spiritual component to that. Right. Right. It's different for every person. So what I'm interested in is, is helping people understand, okay, you know, what is your experience like right now? And does that align with the experience that you want for yourself? And if it doesn't, what's in the way? Hmm. Right. And then can we create something that is intentionally what you want it to be? Not because it's right or wrong or good or bad, or there's, you know, a way that you should be doing it or that it makes you a better person if you do, but because this is your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And no matter what happens to you, you, you get to choose. That's empowering the, the concept of choice and an otherwise yeah. pretty powerless situation. Right. One, one final question about faith. And then I want to move on. It's just, I find it so intrinsically tied to the concept of grief that it's hard for me to not like really dwell here for mm-hmm. a moment. Did you have any, any dreams or experiences or supernatural moments for lack of a better term after Hugo's passing that made you feel something or other about where people do go when they pass. Mm, yeah. Uh, so a couple of things come to mind. One is that was when I was like mad because I remember saying, okay, come to me in my dreams. Show me that you are okay. Give me some sort of sign. And I could never get anything. I just remember being like, you know, kind of mad at him for that. Just wishing for it, longing for it, waking up and just going, oh, it didn't happen again. I didn't, I didn't feel it again. But then the the moment that most comes to mind is I was in the mountains. My, my parents have a cabin in the Rocky mountains in Colorado and Hugo loved to go there. It was one of his favorite places to be. And I was sitting in the main living room with my daughter who at that time, maybe 13, 14, And I was looking at this beautiful view of the valley and I turned to her and I said, I wish Hugo were here. And she looked at me like I had 
multiple heads, right? She looked at me and she goes, mommy, he is here. And I just like, oh, like the, my whole body. I, it was just such a powerful realization for me that connection is, is something we create. I was sitting there experiencing disconnection because I was believing that he wasn't there, that he was somewhere else. And yet my daughter, who's so wise for her age, is sitting there experiencing complete connection with him because it hasn't even occurred to her to believe that he's not there. Hmm. Right. And what, what, what power we have in how we choose to think about where our loved ones are independent of what, what might actually be true, right? What we think about, we, we really do find evidence for. And oh, she I was just that. having this, this connected experience. And then from that moment on, I realized, oh, okay, I get to feel connected to him whenever I want based on how I think. I love that. How wise. Yeah. I know, um, right? At 14, she blows me away. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, kids, it's, I'm telling you, the older we get, the like duller yeah. we get with our perception. There's something so beautiful in the simplicity. Um, you've talked quite a bit about um, the myth of, of the grief stages in your work mm -hmm. and yeah. this popular concept that there are X number of stages of grief. And it's your belief that this doesn't really apply to losing a loved one. Can you tell us why you're not necessarily in agreement with that theory and why you shouldn't necessarily try to fit your experience into a box? Yeah, totally. This is, you know, the only grief theory I knew about after Hugo died was the five stages. I had never heard of any other grief theory. And whenever I ask people what other grief theories they know about, nobody can answer that question unless they're like me and they do grief work. Right. So it's, it's, there are just like any field of study, there are many theories, there are many ideas. And for some reason, the five stages of grief is just the one that caught on. So it's not that it's harmful or bad. It's, it's that it's one of many theories. And I think it's relevant to know that the way that, that, that work came to be was originally, you know, a study of hospice patients. It was a, a study of people who were coming to terms with their own mortality, with the terminal diagnosis. And then that oh, work on death and dying, right? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler's work on death and dying was then applied to grief in, mm -hmm. in on grief and grieving. So, so yes, such a valuable conversation that Dr. Ross started. And at the time, nobody was really talking about it. So so much value in that early work. And also we just kind of seemed to like think that that's where grief theories stopped. And then we never talk about any, anybody else's work. And, and the problem with it is that then if that's our limited experience, then of course, what do we do? We don't want something to be messy. We want it to be neat and tidy. So then we try and go, okay, well, there must be, there's five stages and they must be linear. And then I think I have to follow them. And well, I don't know, am I, did I, did I go through enough denial? Am I angry enough? Should I bargain more? Is this the part where I'm depressed? Have I accepted yet? Right. And we try to fit ourselves in this, what we perceive as a prescriptive formulaic idea, which was never how that work was intended to be, right? Some people feel angry. Some people don't. Acceptance is not like a place that you reach and then poof, you're done, right? There's no end to grief. It was never meant to be follow this process and yea, verily, you shall reach the end of grief. And right, it, grief doesn't end. <laughs> it's so it's true. And that's the, that's the part that sucks the most though, Krista. I, you know, we as humans have such a longing for order and, and, yeah. you know, um, it's just a yeah. set of rules, right? We want I, I say this all the time. 
we want certainty. We want to know what is going to happen next. And and as someone who's living this every day, like, can you can you give us some hope that there's happiness in life, even though grief never ends? Because that totally. Sounds- Really, yeah, different. right. So, here's how I, I like to think about it. So, grief is the natural human response to a perceived loss, right? So, we don't want to shame ourselves or make ourselves feel bad for grieving, it's the natural response to, to a loss and to a connection. And also, because we're not time travelers and we can't go back and undo the loss, we're always going to have a response to it. And so to me, it's it's becoming intentional in choosing the response that we want to have. How do we want to take that part of our life experience and integrate it into the wholeness of, you know, this life that that we're doing? And, and that doesn't have to be sad or lonely or depressed at all. If, if anything, we can become more wise and more intentional and more present, right? More focused, more aligned. Uh, and, and still, the loss has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you work um, recognition if you go into your life now? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and assuming everything you said to be true, which it is, that grief doesn't necessarily end, that you now welcome these connections that you feel you're in charge of to, yeah. quote unquote, be with or reach out to yeah. him in some spiritual way. H- how does the day look for you when you're when you have that pinprick of grief and you're taken down for a minute? What, what are the yeah, tools you use to bounce back? It's evolved so much over time. I mean, now it's it's... I don't really find very many challenges because I've worked through so many of them. So now it feels more like I've got a, I've got a friend who's looking over my shoulder and, you know, and, and happy memories. And I tell lots of stories and my kids and I joke, Hugo's first language was French. And so we have lots of jokes about, you know, ways that he would pronounce words or stories (laughs) that we tell or things like that. Um, And, and so it just feels like more like a warm and loving presence uh, it was interesting to start a new relationship and and find a new partner and then kind of integrate that. Uh, I think I was a little lucky because I have a podcast about grief and he listened to it. <laughs> so, wow, there's yeah. fate, Krista. What? Right? Yeah. Well, he didn't discover me in the podcast. We we met online and then you know, as one does, you do your research, right, to make sure the person's not like a serial killer, lots at least of, as best you can research. figure yes. out. And and so there are a lot of things that because I had said them on the podcast, I didn't have to re-say them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that that other people, that you surround yourself with people who will make space for your memories, right? right. Oh, yeah. You don't, you, I, it yeah. sounds like the last thing you want is to be around someone who doesn't remember the same things. There's so much oh, comfort in, in sharing. Or is, not a, is somehow intimidated by, you know, right. your memories. Because especially if you lose a spouse, you didn't choose that. Right. Right, which is a little bit different than like my first marriage, which ended in divorce, which I chose. A little mm-hmm. bit different, um, but beyond the, the the initial some of the the trauma triggers and things that I had to work through, you know, I've kind of resolved all of those. So it it's it's mostly light and and happy now. That's good. Moving beyond the myth of the five stages of grief, and grief. Then let's talk about the dual process model of grief. That yeah. what that is and how that's been a useful tool for you. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite grief theories. And the reason I like it so much is because it just honors that that life is kind of flowy. Sometimes I notice people will get stuck in this idea of either I need to think only about my grief or I need to completely avoid thinking about my grief. They get kind of stuck in this binary that doesn't really serve them. And the reason I love the dual process model is because 
it, it teaches that healing is in the back and forth flow of both. So you kind of divide activities into grief related. So like you're thinking about your loss, you're, you know, dealing with the memories, you're maybe retelling the story or, you know, loss related things, feeling the feelings. And then there's this other second bucket of activities that are restorative in nature that have nothing to do with the loss, right? So hobbies and spending time with friends and Netflix binges and doing anything other than grief. Mm-hmm. And, and I know for me in the early days, I was told by people, well-meaning people, just keep busy. Don't think about it. Right. And then there were other people who were like, you've got this, you know, work in front of you. And once you do it, you're going to be fine. You're going to come out on the other end. And it was very binary. And so if we can give ourselves the gift of actually planning the activities that aren't related to the loss, giving ourselves permission to do other things, knowing that we're just going to go back and forth, right? Sometimes we're going to think about the loss and sometimes we're going to do the restorative activities. And it's that, that intentional oscillation that is so healing. And it's just freeing because then it doesn't force you into one camp or the other. And it kind of lets you be a human and heal. Yeah. Cause it, what, what I'm hearing too, and this is true with anything, it's true with parenting, it's true with relationships. There is no one roadmap. And again, going back to the concept as humans, we just want it to be easy. We just yeah. feel like there's so much on our plates. God, if there were only a roadmap for raising a kid, or if there were only a roadmap for having a perfect marriage, I mean, we'd all be happy. Yeah. Um, they tell us the joy is in the process, but that can feel very untrue at times of struggle. Yeah. 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 And if you're, if you're constantly telling yourself that whatever you're doing, isn't the thing you're supposed to be doing, you're always going to be in misery. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive further into this, this distraction technique. Um, And I think you're right. Well-meaning people often use that as a tool to kind of get your mind off of things. There's nothing more frustrating Mm -hmm. to me though, as a, as a deep, deep processor and empath, when people tell me to distract myself, I am like, blind with rage. I'm like, but I have to work through it. I need to live in it. And it's just so, but, but you know, it it can be useful. So when you're, when you're talking with people you're coaching, I'd be like, what is that magic formula? And and, and what are some like first baby steps, someone who is tiptoeing into this dual process can kind of start with to make sure they're doing just the right amount of distraction and just the right amount of processing. Yeah. And how I would kind of think about it is like step back and look at how you're spending your time and look for areas that don't feel ideal to you, right? So I will work with clients who once their spouse dies, all of a sudden they're eating more than they wanted to eat, which I definitely did, right? Or they're shopping more than they want to shop or they're drinking more than they want to drink or maybe they're working more than they want to work. They're creating something that is a kind of coping mechanism gone extreme, and they don't really know why they're doing it or how to get themselves out of it. And so, so it's nothing I would be worrying about unless there's something like that going on where you can mm-hmm. tell that there's a pattern you just don't really like. Again, right. not right, wrong, not good, bad. It's not a moral thing. It's just from the point of view of what you want with your life is are you spending the time the way that you want to spend it? And then understanding, okay, probably wasn't taught much about emotion. Most of us weren't, right? We were probably not taught how to actually allow feelings. We were taught how to avoid them and how to judge ourselves for having them and how to hide them, right? Mm-hmm. But, but not really how to feel them. And so, of course, it makes sense then that we end up in this place where when we're faced with emotion that we, we aren't really prepared to handle, that we would turn to a behavior to distract ourselves, Mm-hmm. in a way that serves us because we don't have the skill, but also ultimately in a way that doesn't because it, it, it creates 
some sort of consequence in life that we don't want. And so then the work becomes, okay, how can I learn how to allow whatever feeling this behavior is helping me avoid so that I can see it's really not going to hurt me, mm-hmm. right? I don't need to turn to shopping or food or drinking in excess, right? Right. I don't need, right. To, don't need to work so much that when, when the world gets silent, I can't handle it. Silence is hard. Silence is hard on the best of days, but you're right. You're right. You have to, you have to anticipate that so that you know how to, how to be still. Right. What is the emotion that's likely to show up? What, what, where does my brain go when I am still that makes me feel terrible? And what is that about? Right. Mm -hmm. And can I get, can I get better at allowing myself to, to process whatever it is that I'm feeling? And also, can I look to my internal narrative to figure out what is the story I'm telling myself that makes that silence so hard that makes me want to go to a behavior to get away from it? Yeah. I've talked about this before and I'm curious what your experience with it is. There are people who have words going through their head, actual internal dialogues. That is not Mm -hmm. me. There are people who, then there are people who just have feelings about Mm -hmm. things, which is me. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I have found, this is not advice from a professional, by the way, but what I have found is the reason that I can be uncomfortable with periods of silence, which I'm not anymore as I, as I get older, is that until I put a word to it, it's just a big, big feeling. And and I'm working on this mm-hmm. with my kids right now too. Like name it. It is mm-hmm. fear of never having someone to go outside and take a walk with again, or it is fear. Like mm-hmm. just putting a word to it has yeah. been so powerful for me. And, yeah. and again, that's just my own experience. And that's, that's where I, feeling I beyond add, grief too. I add two more steps to that. Okay. Name it. And I call it the now process is because it's easy for me to remember. So you name it, then you open up to it which is exactly the opposite of what our primitive mind wants us to do, right? But like really truly opening your shoulders and and breathing it in and kind of giving it permission to be there and then witnessing it. That's the W. What actually is it in your body, right? Where is that emotion in your body being experienced? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your chest? Is it in your throat? Like, where is it? And what is it like? Because emotions are just vibrations, right? It's just energy in the body somewhere. And when we shut down, we close off, we can't actually allow them to flow through. So name it, which is brilliant, right? Open up to it, give it permission to be there, and then watch it as as essentially those chemicals make their way through your system, which really only takes about 90 seconds if we're actually in the place of the watcher. And watching is just yeah, like what is it with it? Right. Asking right. yourself questions about it, getting really curious about it. If you were going to explain it to a robot who, who had never experienced a feeling like, what's that guy on Star Trek data, right? Like what actually is it? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it buzzy? Is it slow? Is it fast? Is it, does it have a shape? Does it have a texture? What does it have a color? Like what actually is the experience in your body so mm-hmm. that you are, you are diffused a little from the actual experience. You are the being that is having the experience and not the experience itself. Right. Oh, so, so that uh, this is the first thing I teach my clients is how to change their relationship with feelings because then feelings become less scary and more transitory. And we start to see, oh, there's actually nothing to fear here. I don't need to distract myself. Right. I don't need to distract myself from this vibration because it can't hurt me. And if I get curious about it, it's actually really interesting. And maybe there's something I can learn. I will, I will be using that 
that awesome. method, taking those extra steps there. Yeah. Let's talk to um, the people who are out there dealing with someone who has lost someone. Maybe they haven't recently yeah. personally experienced, but they want to say the right thing. And Krista, mm. is there a right thing to ever say to a grieving person? We have to just give ourselves so much grace and compassion because no, there really isn't. And oh my gosh, if I go, if I look back and I think about all the things I said, the well-intentioned things that I said, um, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Right. So we have to be kind to ourselves and know that we're doing the best that we can. Um, and, and we're just not always going to say things in retrospect the way that we wish we should, but it does get easier when we acknowledge or decide to believe that feelings aren't problems. Mm -hmm. right? They're not problems to solve. Most of the things that people told me after Hugo died were, were because they were well-intentioned, but because they saw my, my hurt and they didn't have the capacity to be with me in that hurt, right? They also didn't have the emotional skills. So the answer in their, in our mind, in our well-intentioned mind is, I don't know how to feel good when that person feels bad. So what can I say to make them feel better? But when you're in grief, you don't want to feel better. You don't want someone to minimize, you know, he's in a better place. Don't worry. You know, you're, you're young. You'll find someone else. It, it was always supposed to be this way. Just trust in the plan. Like you're just like, okay, that I, no. What you really want is for someone who can be with you as you feel the way that you feel and not try to fix you because you're not broken. Hmm. So that if we can like change that. There? Like sometimes sit, sitting with you, like what were your most profound and healing moments with people who were trying to help you after he yeah. was passing? One of, one of my dear coworkers, she, she said, I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble. Do you want to come with me? Right. And she just came and took me out and did not try to change, fix, minimize anything. She just let me talk and just was with me. Right. Those kinds of experiences where, somebody wanted to be in my presence, but could handle me as I was. Right. And, right. and didn't, didn't look for me to be different so that they could feel mm -hmm. better. Oh, I'm yeah. telling you, it's the biggest gift you can give a big feeling person in general, or someone who is grieving is to just let them be. It is. And it's why women go crazy when men usually say to them, calm down. You're just like, no, <laughs> like you just, yes. The worst thing you can do is yeah. just Try to compel someone to put it back in the box, at least for me. Yeah. But yeah, you know, so yeah, totally. Just, I also really appreciated it when people just did things for me because everybody says, "Well, right? let me know if you need anything," but uh, you don't always know what you need right. when you're the griever, and sometimes you're really worried about what other people think of you, or you don't want to mm -hmm. put them out. And so when people just jumped in and did stuff, like one of my friends just jumped in and bought school supplies for my kids because school is about to start. She didn't even ask; she just got right. the school supply list and she just did it. Right, little things like that. Is some guys came over and they just mowed my lawn every few weeks or every week for a few weeks, you know? Right. Right. That's yeah. huge. What about kids? I mean, kids are often mm. witness to this grief. If they're not experiencing it themselves in their immediate circle, they're part of the families who are coming over to help. So give us mm. some guideposts for not only families with kids who are experiencing grief directly, but also talking about grief in yeah. concept to our own children. Yeah. Yeah. So being, uh, using words that are not ambiguous, is one of the biggest things that I would love to see people practice. So meaning when we tell a child someone got sick and didn't make it. Okay. I imagine if you don't understand what that means as a child, then the next time somebody gets sick, what are you going to think? Right. As opposed to, you know, he had cancer 
which caused his, you know, this part of his body to stop working. And so he died. Do you see the difference? So we want to go, we, we, we try to use these vague kind of flower, flowery language because we think it's going to like soften the blow or make it somehow more palatable when what it actually does is opens their little minds to how, how it could happen again. And they don't really know, right. Or we're not honest with them. And so specific, honest, age appropriate conversations. Okay. So so don't be scared of the detail with kids. No. And it's just, it's unemotional detail, but it's factual. It's giving them the information that they need so that their, you know, their minds don't fill in the gaps. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, and, and anyone, even outside of the concept of grief, raising kids, I think if you don't believe that already comes to that realization, you you cannot hide the truth from kids. So Mm -hmm. you better figure out an age appropriate way to describe just about everything they see and give them that yeah. information because they're going to fill in the blanks with totally whatever it may be if you don't. Okay, yeah. so we've got detailed conversations. What about for those who who may be witnessing through their parents or someone else close to them sort of grief from like a second degree? It's same kind of concept, you know, so and so's dad what yes. died went to heaven. I mean like give us give us some actual well, practical you know, yeah, I, I don't my views might not be the same as one of your listeners' views, so I don't want to presuppose, sure. you know, heaven or anything. But, but to the best of your ability, articulate it as clearly and factually as possible. So, um, you know, so and so's dad got sick, and um, you know, went into the hospital, and they tried to help, and they were unable to fix his body, and so his body stopped working. Right. And, and we're, we're telling explicitly, like specifically what happened. It wasn't that just all of a sudden he didn't feel well. And then he went to sleep. Well, that, cause that's right. terrifying. Yeah, it's really terrifying. Yes. Right. Cause maybe I don't feel well and I might go to sleep or what if, what if now someone, you know, that, that child loves it. What if that happens? That's very scary. So right. we can be more specific and also not, not give false assurances. Don't worry. This won't happen to me. Right. Don't worry. That won't happen to you. Those things are, are, often we kind of make ourselves feel better by telling a child that in the moment, but that's not really helpful in the long term, right? Right now we're safe. I'll do my best job, you know, my, my best to take care of you. As long as I'm around, you know, I'm going to take care of you, but, but don't make promises you can't keep. Hmm. Yeah. It's so true. Like I remember being young and my mom, I, as I, I was clearly a very anxious child too, but really like being introduced to the concept of death fairly early. We are, we were always at, not always, I don't want to say, but we never avoided funerals as a mm-hmm. family, like great aunts, mm-hmm. great uncles, mm-hmm. anyone yeah. that passed this big Italian family, we all show up. Yeah. Not only do we show up, we go up to the casket. You go up, you mm-hmm. say a prayer. I'm like six and seven and I'm witnessing grief and I'm understanding, yep. the, which was really valuable. But I do remember coming back from some of those experiences and saying, oh my God, what if it happens to you? And my mom, to her credit, was like, Sonny, that's life. And mm-hmm. well, I'll be here. It's exactly what you said, which, I, you know, is really the only answer. And it's difficult for a child to sort of conceptualize. And it really is the last thing you want to tell your own child is yeah. there is possibility that I walk out that door and don't come back. But mm-hmm. like you said, the alternative is much more difficult to bear because you pay the price down the line when something yeah. actually does happen. Yeah. So and, so, just, and your child does too, right? Yes. Awful, awful. Okay. Tell us, uh, I just want to get into some couple more finer points before we... Um, mm-hmm. Before we wrap things up here, you have this really, really interesting point emailing back and forth about how patriarchy shows up in grief. And I want to touch on this too, especially coming from the perspective of a woman experiencing grief. Tell us about this theory and and what's behind it. 
yeah. So, you know, the, the women that I work with widowed moms, um, <clears throat> I tend to see this more than maybe other grief workers might because of, of who I'm helping. But many of us are socialized to believe that what is ideal for us is to find a person, right? Become a mother, become a wife. And our identity is really wrapped up in that. And because we've always thought that, you know, the happiest day of your life is the day you get married, right? And the most important thing for you is to, is to be a, a mom and a good one at that. Then when, when, when the perfect relationship we thought we had gets taken away from us, and this is mm. independent of what our brain is doing, which is a whole nother deal, right? In terms of how it encodes we and how it's got to relearn and, and create its own identity again. Um, but it can be really hard for a woman to imagine herself as happy and whole when she's been socialized to believe that her value comes from being in a relationship, right? And being a partner and being a mother. And mm. uh, even just, you know, I'm going to be in a room. Do I wear my wedding ring? What will they think if I don't mean my, wear my wedding ring? Does that mean I didn't love them enough? Does that mean I'm a bad wife? Right? All of this drama that happens in our brain that most people don't even know happens. And then they, they feel less than because they're no longer in a partnered relationship. Now we're inclined to jump back in to try to find another partnered relationship because we don't see ourselves as whole without being in one. It's just a whole cluster of thanks patriarchy. <laughs> Sometimes. I know, right? You don't realize how screwed well, you are until you realize it. And you're like, wow, I've been socialized in some really interesting ways as a woman. Yeah. And conversely, it's also a brilliant opportunity to then look at that and go, wow, I really did right. believe that without another person, there's a missing piece. What would it be like to believe that in and of myself, I am whole and completely lovable and worthy? And and there there is no actual, you know, change in my worth that happens when I am in a partnered relationship. Or, you know, like productivity, like all the things that we're conditioned to believe mm -hmm. tend to show up when we're, we're trying to re refigure it out. So like not to play too much into the Disney narrative of like happily ever after of it all, but you seem to have found happiness beyond grief. And I don't want to promise anyone that there's yeah. always the same outcome at the end of the tunnel, mm -hmm. but tell me when you found happiness and when you I didn't found find it, it. was... You didn't find I it. And I created you, it. Oh, that's okay. So what what, right? what did it look like? And at what point were you emotionally when you felt whole enough to accept that? Yes. 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 When I figured out that happy, it's so cliche, but it is so true, that happiness is an inside job. It is not something caused by the circumstances of our lives. It is caused by how we think about ourselves in our lives. It is something we create wherever we are, wherever we go. And, and anything that says we are less than or don't have what we need or aren't whole is, is, is just a lie. <laughs> so it's, it's coming back to what you can control, which is how you think about yourself in your life which is what creates your emotional experience of it and fully owning that. And so I didn't even personally, not that it's right or wrong, but I personally didn't even date until I was about three years into it because mm. I, I honestly I didn't want to for quite a while. The idea was a total turnoff to me. It felt like a lot of work, but I really wanted to get to a place where I loved my life. 
exactly as it was. And it, and it wasn't because I was depending on someone else to give me something or believe in me or, or give me love. It was because I was giving it to myself and I was feeling, feeling really good. And then, be, be, you know, deciding to date again became more about new experiences I wanted to have and love I had that I wanted to give. And it didn't feel like the missing piece, right, that I was trying to find because I, I figured out there wasn't a missing piece. That was just an illusion. Ugh. You are knocking me uh, just off my, out of my socks today with some of this. There's some conversations I go into, Krista, that I'm like, you know, this will be a benefit to the audience, maybe not maybe for me at the moment, but this has been such a pleasantly surprising conversation that so many of I'm the so tools glad. that you talk about, yes, are, are applicable at every stage in, in our lives and that we will yeah. all have a need for the work you do at some point in our lives. And we have had, but um, wow, like I'm just... <laughs> I'm uh, yeah. I mean, this I, I'm really, really grateful that a lot of these things you're talking about seem to be able to be applied to so many stages yeah. of our life, yeah. which is always yeah. up and down. Yeah, I, so. I hear that a lot too from listeners of the podcast that aren't even widows or moms. They're just like, I just really like, I just really like the information and the way it's making yes. me think. I mean, to be honest, even grieving the change in a relationship or the loss of a friendship or the loss of a relationship with a loved one. I mean, we grief yeah. is a universal experience. And I we, we yeah. tend, as as we just discussed, to really paint things in black and white terms. We've only experienced grief if you've lost a, a parent or a spouse. It's really not. I mean, we, we feel the loss of something at many points in our lives. Yeah. So this is absolutely. so helpful in every way. I'm so glad. Gosh. Yes. Um, Krista, tell us more about uh, where we can find you, how people can engage with you directly to work with you. As we said at the beginning sure. of the podcast, you're a coach. So you do work directly with some clients. Are you taking on new people? And how do we connect with you to hear more? Yes. Yes. So the Widowed Mom podcast is my podcast. So everyone is welcome to come and listen to that. Don't need to be a widow or a mom to listen and benefit and learn more about grief and post-traumatic growth and all of the things that I just love helping people with. As far as clients, I only work with widowed moms and I only do that in a group capacity. So I, I run a group coaching program, which is just for widows. It doesn't matter how old your children are. They can be grown and you can have grandkids. That's fine too. But as long as you identify as 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 a widow and a mom, then that that's what I do is, is help people get past whatever it is that that they believe is holding them back from loving life again and really get to that place if they want to where they genuinely do love life again. So, um and then coachingwithkrista.com is where all the contact information lives, all the socials and everything. All right. Well, thank you, Krista. I You're I'm so welcome. beyond grateful for your wisdom today. Thank oh, you for my, coming. Totally on the my show. pleasure. What a great world we live in that we can we can help people through technology like this. So cool. So cool. Thank you again, guys. And thank you if you've been watching and listening. Um, I, like I just said, there are some things you go into and you're like, well, maybe this doesn't apply to my life right now, but this really, really sort of changed my perspective on um, how universal this advice is for all of us at various stages in our life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I. A-B-A-T-T-A. -T -T All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. Yeah.